Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the second letter to Timothy. It's probably easier to start in the book of Revelation in the back and just make your way to the left, and you will get to what is the second of three pastoral letters. So we're continuing in our series through 2 Timothy. This is the last letter really written by the Apostle Paul uh, at the near end of his ministry. It's assumed that Paul wrote 2 Timothy from a dark and damp Roman cell somewhere just before his death uh, in around A.D. 67. At this time, he got a psychotic Roman emperor named Nero who had started to persecute Christians around A.D. 64, so it had been a few years. Uh, It started after a great fire that historians believe he himself may have lit, but it burned down half the city of Rome. And so the disciples of Christ, the believers in the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords, became a very convenient scapegoat for Nero. And as a result, they suffered pretty horribly uh, a pretty great persecution from this madman. So Paul understood, uh, as he is you know, sitting on death row in many ways, that ministry was going to only become more difficult for Timothy, his best friend, and he knew that his death was going to uh, make him feel very lonely. Now, recently in an article, um, Pastor Alistair Begg, you may be familiar with him, he's been on the radio, he's written books, and he said this, which I thought was insightful. He says, perhaps it is only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced what the Bible says is true. And that is, in this world, we really are sojourners and exiles. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But as it is, Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. Not apathy, but antagonism. So, simply said, it is going to become, or maybe it is becoming, harder and harder to be a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-worshipping Christian. And in my view, it's sometimes becoming increasingly harder because of what the world is doing or saying, and other times it's because of what other so-called Christians are doing and saying. In his first letter to this same pastor, Timothy, Paul wrote this. He said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later or latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So I believe we are living in these later times, have been for quite a while. And in our day and age, there are many who are deconverting, deconstructing, or otherwise departing the faith. And some have become self-described hopeful agnostics, while others I would describe as having become hardened activists against the gospel. Both have become ashamed of the gospel that they grew up with, and even ashamed of the church that they grew up in. Now, this should sadden us, but it should never shock or surprise us, as Paul said by the Spirit, that this would happen. 
He said it would happen in our day, and he saw it happen in his own day as well. This is not new. So Paul writes to Timothy to prepare him or perhaps remind him and us of this experience that is happening and will happen. And as it does, he wants to help him fight the temptation to give in when so many others around him seem to be giving up. It is hard to stand alone. It is hard to stand alone. And it's much easier to be popular than it is to be right. The more that so-called Christians depart from the faith, it is going to become more and more lonely, where you feel like you are standing alone. So Paul, knowing this will happen for Timothy, is writing to remind him that even if everyone he knows quits the race or walks off the field, that he can be strengthened by grace to stand firm, to work hard, and to finish well, to finish well. If you look at 2 Timothy, chapter 1 is where we'll start in verse 15, and just read 18, and then we'll go into chapter 2. Beginning in verse 18 of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, it says this, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus, where Timothy is at. So our text begins with Paul's description of his experience in Asia, which is simply everyone turned away from him. Everyone walked away from him. Everyone abandoned him. We know this is not simply a general description of how Paul just feels. I just feel abandoned. He names two specific men who he's talking about. More than simply Christians, these two men are likely former friends, former gospel partners, familiar enough to Timothy and the church of Ephesus that they would know who he is talking about. These were well-known team members. And whether they have turned away from the faith is not really clear. But what is clear that at some point they turned away from Paul. On his journey to Rome, facing persecution, these faithful team members deserted Paul at his time of greatest need. Now, Paul names another brother in Christ, another partner in the gospel, and his family, and describes how they ministered to him even when he was in prison or is in prison. And about this man named Onesiphorus, he writes this, this guy, he's, he was not ashamed of my chains. He was not ashamed of my chains. So the implication seems to be that Phygelus and Hermogenes abandoned Paul because they were, in fact, ashamed of Paul's chains. They either didn't want to be identified with Paul or they were fearful of Paul's experience. Who knows? But they were ashamed of the chains that Paul was currently in. Now, if you go backwards into the first chapter of this letter, 
in verses 7 and 8, if you remember, Paul had told Timothy, look, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of power. Not a spirit of fear, or a spirit of, but a spirit of power. And then in the next verse, he says, therefore, so it's based off of what you have the spirit of power, therefore, do not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony, the gospel, the testimony about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so, as the world becomes more antagonistic toward Christians and toward biblical truth, Paul's warning gives us a very real temptation warning, if you will. His words give us some warning that it's going to be tempting to give up. It's going to be tempting to be ashamed. Now, for good and bad reasons, more than a few scholars have compared America to Rome. Now, Rome was at that time in the past considered one of the greatest empires ever known to man. And in the time of Paul, its influence and its reign was was completely global. It was believed that their rule extended to the ends of the earth. Now, as the center of civilization, this is where Paul wanted to be. In fact, he had said he was eager in his first letter to the Romans, I am eager to preach the gospel in Rome. I want to be in the center of civilization, the place of most influence, and in that place, I want to preach the gospel. He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I will go to the center of the pagan world, the center of idolatry, and I will boldly preach the gospel. Why? Because I believe it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Now, living in America today, I'm not sure we have as much eagerness to preach the gospel. I would argue that eagerness has given way a little bit to perhaps embarrassment for a lot of evangelical Christians. Even that term evangelical, people have become ashamed of, which it's really just connected to the gospel. In shame, many have turned away from the simple gospel because of this reason. They're becoming convinced that God's word and the gospel no longer has the power to save. They believe there's other saviors out there. Much like our first parents, they've exchanged the truth of God for lies. And these lies tickle the ears and delight the eyes. This turning away of many has been accelerated by watching the few who stand for truth get crucified by the world. And so many have abandoned the faith so that they don't get abandoned by their friends or their family or whomever is important to them. Well, at the end of this letter, Paul is going to recount another experience when he first stood trial. And he says at the end of this letter, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. No one was with him. So he got abandoned by all his friends and partners in Asia. He's standing trial and says, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. And graciously says, may it not be charged against them like I understand. 
But then he says, but the Lord, the Lord stood by me, and the Lord strengthened me. Now, soon Paul knows he's going to die, and Timothy will not have Paul to lean on. He will not have his faithful friend and his godly words to find strength in. And while it's a blessing to have family that believes, it's a blessing to have friends and coworkers who believe, the truth is, when things get increasingly hard or costly, more and more will depart the faith. And you will begin to see that the love for the Word will be replaced by love for the world. And when, not if, and when you find that there is no one and nothing to lean on as you once did, to find strength and encouragement like that person who is always faithful, they're not there. You will always have the Lord. And you must turn to the Lord. And with the Lord, you can actually stand alone. And this is where Paul wants to turn Timothy's attention. And this is why, as you go into chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, having talked about being abandoned and being deserted and no one standing with him and him being basically alone except with the Lord, he says this, You then, my child, knowing this, knowing that's been my experience and knowing in many ways this will probably be your experience, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So before he tells Timothy, which you will, to fight hard and run hard and work hard, he says, be strengthened by the grace found in Jesus. You see, when things get difficult, this is not usually where most people turn. At least not first. I'm guilty of that. I'm imagining at least one person that when things get hard, we don't often turn to the Lord, we turn inward to ourselves. We say we're finding strength in the Lord, but we function as if we are finding strength in ourselves. I'm going to pull my bootstraps up, I'm going to white knuckle, I'm going to push through, I'm going to do it. But in Paul saying the words, you then, he is building off of what he has already said earlier to Timothy, namely that because he cannot trust so many ever-changing things, especially the changing affections and allegiances of men and women, of friends and family, he's going to have to find strength in something that never changes, and that is the love of God in Christ. You see, focusing on grace, on undeserved favor, on unconditional love, on a love that knows how sinful and broken you are and yet still loves, focusing on that reminds us that where we are and who we are and where we're headed is all covered in grace. Our work never saves us and our work doesn't have the power to sustain us either. Now I know to be strengthened by grace sounds all well and good and Christian. The kind of thing you're like, be strengthened by grace. And then move on without explanation. And we just assume, oh, you know what that means. But what does it really mean? And the most simplest what things. Well, 
we are tempted to abandon the faith, I believe. We are tempted to turn away from what is true when things get hard. Because in that moment, we think to ourselves, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough to stand alone. To be strengthened by grace is simply this. It's not to pretend that you're strong enough. It's actually to admit that you are weak. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is when Paul was struggling. This is when Paul felt weak. This is when Paul was really pleading with God to help because he didn't feel like he could do it and endure. And he said, my grace is sufficient for my power is perfect, made perfect in weakness. And in response to hearing Jesus say this, Paul wrote this, so I will boast more gladly all the more of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. I'm content with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I admit that I can't do it, I can have Jesus do it for me. Now, the truth is, it is really easy to not be ashamed of Jesus when you realize that he is never, ever ashamed of you in your weakness. You have permission to admit your weakness. You have permission to admit your mistakes. You have permission to admit your failures. In fact, you have invitation to do that so that you recognize the grace and find strength to push forward. It is easier to not be ashamed of Jesus when you realize that he is never ashamed of you. And it's only when you're able to live in this state of grace that you actually can give grace to anybody. And by giving grace, I don't actually mean uh, just being gracious or kind to one another. I, that's a good thing. What I mean is being able to offer the same kind of grace to someone else in the form of the gospel. To be able to offer someone freedom as a prisoner. To offer purity if they are dirty and broken. To offer hope if they feel guilty. It's being an ambassador for Christ. Paul charges Timothy to entrust what he has been taught to faithful men who will give to others, who will give to others, who will give to others. And there are many things that Timothy has been entrusted with. He has been the closest confidant of Paul. He has watched Paul teach and preach over and over. He's taught all kinds of stuff. But there's only one thing that Paul ever in his letters called of first importance, and that was the gospel of grace. He wants Timothy to entrust this deposit, the thing that's been entrusted to him to be strengthened by what he has been strengthened by, to pass on what Paul said was the most important thing to him, the thing he wanted to know more than anything else, which was Jesus and him crucified, the cross. The cross that shows you're more sinful than you would ever, ever know or admit, but you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. In his last words to the Ephesian elders, Paul said, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I see from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his goal, to 
talk about God's grace to sinners. So as Christian, as Christian pastors, as Christian parents, as just people, there's a lot that you can pass on to friends and to family and to others. But there is only one thing that you must pass on. Because there is only one thing that has the power to save. That's the gospel. Grace alone is the reason for our salvation. Grace alone is the power for us to change and to be sanctified. Grace alone is the only hope we have for eternity. Now, interestingly enough, surprisingly, shockingly, when you preach grace alone, when you preach faith in Jesus alone, you're not going to win many fans or followers. You'd think that like, oh, God's gracious and God is loving and repent and, and receive the free gift of You think like, oh man, people are going to be lining up. Nope. The gospel of grace is actually offensive. It offends everybody. It offends the legalists and offends the liberal. It offends the religious people and it offends the irreligious people. Despite the invitation to just, look, just walk, just come into the light and, and walk in the goodness of, of the love of God, men love the darkness. They hate God. They hate His Word. They don't want to be told what to do. Let us remember Paul was imprisoned, persecuted a ton, imprisoned, beheaded because he preached the gospel of grace. Timothy, who this letter is written to, Timothy lived to be about 80 years old. And history, I could say legend because it's not totally confirmed, but history tells us that 80-year-old Timothy tried to stop a procession that was honoring the goddess Diana. And history tells us the way he tried to stop it was by preaching the gospel. And when he preached the gospel, the angry pagans beat him, dragged him through the streets, and stoned him to death. So this is why Paul writes here, to Timothy in the second chapter, share in the suffering as a good soldier. There in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete's not a crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. As Paul had experienced and Timothy is certain to, Many people are going to give up when the going gets tough because the going is going to get tough. And part of the reason that suffering kind of overwhelms us and surprises us is because we actually don't expect to suffer. And this is not the picture of the Christian life that Paul is portraying. He's not saying like, you're only going to suffer, but that you are going to suffer. We ignore Jesus' own words that says, count the cost. There's a cost to being a Christian. It is going to cost you many things. 
Later in his letter, Paul is going to write in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. I don't think we believe that. Perhaps we understand persecution differently. But those who fight the good fight, those who stay the course, those who work hard to keep the faith are going to suffer in a greater way than those who do not fight, who do not run, or do not stand. So Paul offers, I think, Timothy some new lenses. He gives him three images, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, for him to gain some perspective as he moves forward in his faith and ministry. The first image is that of a soldier. There's an important image for all of us, right? Soldiers, we understand, they're fighters, and they are prepared for the battle. Now, when you're a soldier, I'm going to say something that's like really silly. But when you're a soldier, you expect to get shot at, right? Like you expect people to try and kill you and try and hurt you. And life in the trenches is exciting. There's an exhilaration to it, and it's also terrifying. But soldiers understand that you're in a battle. They understand that you actually must run toward the battle, not away from it. Soldiers charge the hills. Soldiers hold the lines. Soldiers run arm in arm with brothers and sisters into the firefight, knowing full well they actually may not return. And they do this because of one simple truth. They know what is at stake. Everyone has a vision for what fighting means as a Christian. You see all kinds of different versions of fighting. Some people believe they should stand and denounce the world at every opportunity online or on the corners. And if that's how you feel like you should fight, go right ahead. Others think, oh, I think I'm going to do a more passive fight. I'm going to defend the truth with my life and with simple conversation. Whatever. There's like a thousand different fighting styles. Pick one. Because I don't know what fighting style maybe you're into or what you might do spiritually speaking, but you can tell when someone's fighting and when someone's giving up. And maybe your fighting style is just pulling hair and kicking shins. Go for it in the name of Jesus, right? Regardless, the soldier understands something that others don't, that you live in a war zone. This is why Paul uses language like in his letter to the Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You're in a war zone. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Have you done all to stand firm? Are you running on the battlefield naked? If you are, you're stupid. You're either ignoring the fact that there is an actual battlefield or you actually believe you won't get shot. Because no one, I mean, no one likes to take a bullet for their beliefs. That can mean all kinds of things figuratively. No one likes to be attacked. No one likes to be shot at. And that's why most 
Christians, I'm sure none here, most Christians, most people choose the civilian life. I'd rather be a civilian because the civilian life is safe and the civilian life is comfortable and the civilian life is far away from the front lines. The civilian either ignores the battle that is being waged around them or they depend on other people to fight the battle for them. And children can do that for a while. Thinking very little about war or warfare, civilians concern themselves with knickknacks and Netflix. Those are the biggest battles they got to fight. What am I going to watch today? What am I going to buy today? Civilians can think about all kinds of comfortable things because they avoid conflicts. They avoid personal sacrifices. They don't take gospel risks. And guess what? They panic when they're shot at because they never expect that. And instead of standing to fight, they run and hide because they're, they're not a soldier. More than anything, they want to avoid the suffering that comes from just being different. So they'll live life below the radar. And Paul says, be a soldier for Christ. And just expect the battle to wage around them and be prepared for it. The second image he gives us might be more helpful to you. It's athletic. Paul likes athletic. I always wondered if Paul himself was athletic. He uses these images a lot. I think the culture of the time was largely athletic or idolized athletics, much like our own culture does. In 1 Timothy, the first letter Paul wrote, he used imagery like this. He said, look, Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for this present life and also the life to come. It's like, look, train yourself. There's some training involved. Go to the gym. Spiritual gym. So, practically speaking, athletes train. Competitive athletes really train. Competitive athletes make huge sacrifices of time. Like there's a reason why you will never, ever, 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 ever see a sticker on the back of my car that says 26.2. Never. I used to have a 0.0 sticker just to, you know, you know what, others. But 26 point, not going to happen. Why? I will never make the discipline sacrifice required to run a marathon. If I sign up for a marathon tomorrow, I'd be dead by mile 10. Not going to do it. I don't like running. I hate it. Give me a ball. I'll kick it in the net. That's about as far as it goes. I'm not running 26.2 miles. If you want to be a, not just run a marathon, you want to be a marathon runner. You want to be a triathlete. Like that's a whole nother level. You make serious sacrifices. There's time sacrifices. There's diet sacrifices. There's activity sacrifices. It's a disciplined life if you want to succeed. A disciplined athlete can run fast. They can run hard. They can run and compete for a long time. And guess what? When they hit the wall, they're able to push through because they've trained. Think about that spiritually. Some of us get winded spiritually walking up a flight of stairs. Spiritually speaking. 
See, viewing faith like an athlete means you prioritize your life around the purposes of God. And namely, one of the purposes of God is that you're in a race. And you're running the race of faith and you've got to run according to the rules. You can't just run the way you want. Right? It's not just going for a little jog. There's a lane to run in. There are rules to follow. There's a finish line that you're aiming for. There's purpose in it. I like what Paul writes again with athletic language in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. He runs hard, he runs right. I imagine sometimes spiritually, like some of us are running aimlessly with no purpose, no direction. It's like, you see a guy running, he's like, <laughs> I see these people, I'm not one of these people. I see these people and they're going, right? Imagine running a race and like people like this and then one guy's like, hey, what's going on? I'm just kind of running around. Hey, what, what are you doing? Cool. I'm like, what are you doing, man? To get out of my way. I feel like spiritually a lot of us do that. We're just like wandering around. Like, start running. Get moving. I mean, you may not be fast. Your run may be very ugly. Some people run totally strange. I run bow-legged and look weird, but I'm fast. But, I mean, I get it. But, again, it's the idea of, like, fighting, right? I know when someone's, like, not fighting, and I know when someone's standing still and not running. doesn't matter how you run. Run! That was what you were designed to do. But we're not, we don't want to do the discipline that requires, is required for us to run. We, so we're, we're not disciplined athletes. We end up being undisciplined spectators. We just watch. And these days, it's amazing how many people are disciplined in other aspects of their life. Disciplined with their money, disciplined with their vocations, disciplined with their recreation and their family time and all these things. But like, what about Spiritually. What point are you going to get spiritually fit? You're fit in all these other areas of your life, like some very good things, but they may not be God things. Athletes prioritize. We can't go on living as if every single day is a cheat day, right? Or I could probably eat whatever I want today. I don't have to exercise today. You do that spiritually, I think it takes 72 hours for your muscles to start getting out of shape. Spiritually, it's probably a lot faster. And if you do sacrifice, and if you do make those choices, like when the going gets tough, you won't feel like quitting. But if you do, or if you don't, I should say, you will. Because you don't have any built-in spiritual endurance. And one tragedy or difficulty hits your life and you freak out. Instead of running, I think we spend a lot of time sitting and admiring those who have made, if you will, the sacrifices and risked stepping into the arena. We'd rather watch them. We'd rather share them online. And here's the other thing. Christianity is a relay race. 
And, and by that I mean Paul knows, like, he has run his leg hard. And I, and others, but, but I've run my leg hard too. And the worst thing to do is to pass the baton to someone who's standing still. You've got to be running, moving. That's what Paul's telling Timothy, right? Run, move. You can only pass it to someone who's starting to run. The third image, and last one, is the third uh, is the farmer. And that might be unfamiliar to us, though, in Snohomish County. We still have some farms. And... But you know that farmers work hard, right? Farmers rise up early in the morning, and farmers go to bed late at night, and they're tired because they work hard all day. And year after year, season after season, they work the fields, they cultivate the soil, they plant the seed, they protect the fields from, from that and those who might want to harm it. And we praise God for farmers, Right? Because they serve us who eat. But the thing about it is no matter how hard a farmer works, no matter how many variables they try to control, when all is truly said and done, they don't really have control over the results. They have control over the faithfulness with which they work, but not the fruitfulness like sometimes fruit will grow, sometimes it will be a great season, and sometimes it won't be. And sometimes, spiritually speaking, you do the same thing over and over, faithfully again and again and again, and sometimes you get different results. Often faith has been described as a long obedience in the same direction. But the truth is many of us are farmers I mean, are not farmers, we're actually just consumers because we can't stand waiting. By definition, consumers don't produce anything, they just consume. And much like our first parents, they often consume whatever fruit looks good and is a delight to the eyes, even if God says it's bad for you. We live in an instant gratification culture, and the idea of farming and waiting for fruit, uh, let me do something that's a little more instantaneous. This long-term faithfulness is just too difficult for me. What can I point and click? And so when our faithfulness, like why do people give up? Why are people departing the faith? And Paul's trying to tell Timothy this, right? Like long-term faithfulness, why do people give up because they're not seeing the fruitfulness that they expected. They're not seeing it instantly. They're not seeing the kind, the amount, whatever. They're like, well, this isn't working. Let me try something else. It is working. It just takes a long time for fruit to be produced. Let us never forget, and some author said this, that we worship a God, namely Jesus, who walks three miles an hour. He's a bit slow, intentionally so. We not only expect things much faster, we actually would rather feast than feed others. Most of my life, I was a consumer. I hopped from church to church, 
not engaging, not serving, just consuming whatever was put out on the table. My mouth was quite dirty, and my hands were very clean. The truth is, if you are here, you have been given a job, and you've been given a particular field to work. And your job is not to ensure that that field produces something. Your job is just to work the field that you've been given. As Paul says, you know, endurance requires us to understand where our responsibility begins and ends. And he said, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So maybe you're the waterer, maybe the planter, maybe the cultivator, I don't know. God is the one who will give the growth. Your job is just to be faithful, to take that long obedience in the same direction. And he's trying to tell Timothy that. I remember one pastor, I think it's Mark Dever, who said, young pastors overestimate what they can do in five years and they underestimate what they can do in 25. And we do the same things with our families and our faith and our churches. Well, the last verse in conclusion that Paul writes, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I like that verse. It reminds us that sometimes God's word is difficult to understand. It's clear, though, that Paul here is preparing Timothy for his next season of ministry that's going to be hard, and he knows that things are going to even get harder when he is gone. In many ways, Paul is trying to shape his expectations by giving him new perspectives. Because thriving or maybe just simply surviving in this next season is going to require more than just reading one letter or hearing one sermon. See, every new hardship is going to tempt us to ask why questions. Why? Why this? Why now? Answers to these questions aren't easy of why things unfold the way they do, why things are harder the way they are. But Paul promises understanding if we don't just ask why, but we ask why, Lord. Just asking why is a very different question than asking why, Lord. Turning to the Lord, seeking understanding, and waiting patiently for him to respond. Well, as I said, we often feel like our faith is hard because we don't expect hardship. But if you adopt the perspective that Paul is giving us, then this should be the way you approach faith. The soldier expects to be shot at. The athlete expects to make sacrifices. And the farmer expects to work hard and the fruit to take some time. As Paul told Timothy, the strength to be a soldier or to be an athlete or a farmer is found in the grace of Jesus. So in other words, we fight like soldiers, and we run like athletes, and we work like farmers in response to God's love. In response to how Jesus fought and died for us, how he ran the race for us, how he worked and waited for us. And when it gets hard, and when everyone else seems to give up or give in, and you feel like you're standing alone, as Paul had many times Remind yourself that Jesus is standing there and he is whispering into your ear these words. In the world, 
He said, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We need not fear. And we can stand. Not because we are strong and mighty, but because Jesus is. That's the one relationship that's going to last for eternity. It's best we stand with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us. And we praise you for your word to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you take the words that we individually need to hear and drive them deeply into our hearts. Even now, Lord, we're experiencing it becoming harder to stand for the truth of your word, to stand for the gospel of grace, to stand for Jesus Christ alone. I pray you will strengthen us, Lord. You help us to be strengthened by the grace that we have, that we are sinners saved by grace, that we are loved despite all of our guilt and shame, that you know it all and we are forgiven in love, but then empowered to be ambassadors for you. Help us, Lord, to be soldiers and to expect difficulty and not fear it. Help us to be athletes, Lord, to prioritize our lives around you. And to be farmers, Lord, working hard the fields that you have given us, trusting you for the fruit. Help us to have these mentalities, Lord. Help us to stand together. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.